Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness throughout all the generations. Lord, we thank you as we recount this morning when you took your servant Abraham out into the night and told him to look out and number the stars and promised that you would make his generations the number of the stars, his descendants, the children of Abraham, to be as the stars in the galaxies. Lord, we thank you that in your mercy, we are one of those stars. We are, by faith, now children of promise, inheritors of this great story that you have written in redemptive history. We thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. We thank you that you came and fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the law. Every shadow finds its substance in you. Every story finds its meaning in you. Every type finds its fulfillment in you. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to be for us the covenant of grace and enfold us into your story of redemption. You are good, Lord. And I pray that this would not just be an intellectual exercise, but it would lead to worship and a vision of your goodness. For your sake, Christ, that you might get the glory in these next few minutes and for the good of your people. Amen. Okay, real quick rehash. Uh, As I said last week, every May we shut adult Sunday school down and choose a topic for me to lecture on. Um, This year, um, it's not as specific as it's been the past couple years. It's more broad and uh, general. And we're we're picking up the task of this thing called covenant theology. Um, I introduced the concept to you last week by talking about um, this thing called dispensationalism, which I said is the prevailing way of viewing Scripture um, in, in the evangelical church of our day. Um, we talked a lot about what that means, what that looks like, and, um, and then briefly got into covenant theology. And then by way of review, um, I said that covenant theology, there's, there's three ways of viewing it, three kind of covenants. Uh, covenant of redemption, what that is, is that's a, that's a triune agreement. That is an agreement that the Father, Son, and Spirit have um, conspired together to create and to redeem um, once we, uh, once we uh, ruined their plan, so to speak. You have the covenant of redemption. The second one was the uh, covenant of works, and we talked about that was the original agreement uh, between um, God and his image bearers, those who are in Adam, that he made an agreement where if you will follow, if you will obey me, if you will follow my commands, we will live in perfect relationship between one another. You will experience perfect relationship between man um, within each other, between humanity, and perfect relationship between the creation. Um, and we talked about how they, they ruined that. They, they ruined the covenant of works. And, um, and, and, and then God entered into this thing called covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is uh, the covenant of redemptions uh, 
contract, the triune covenant um, contract that God made with himself to save humanity out of the penalty of the covenant of the works. The covenant of the works was death. If you disobey, you die. That's a, a physical death. We have a death-filled world and a spiritual, eternal death. That is the punishment for our sins. That's the penalty of the covenant of the works. The covenant of grace comes and God promises that he is going to somehow, even though we cannot escape the covenant of works, God is going to somehow undo this and restore the original relationship um, that he had with man that he established in covenant of works. The whole Bible is telling the story of the covenant of grace. All of the Old Testament is a shadow of the story. It is a preview of the story. It is a type of the story. And then it all finds its fulfillment in, in Jesus and his kingdom that he brought and his church that he established. So today, what we are going to do is we're going to tell this story. I'm going to, let me tell you where we're going the next three weeks so maybe you can kind of conceptually understand. Today I'm going to just tell this story. I'm going to go from Genesis 3.15 where he establishes the covenant of grace. And then I am going to um, go through the entire Old Testament and, and, and lead us up to the fulfillment of the new covenant in Jesus. Next week we are going to focus on that new covenant. It's a big claim to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel to... to, to um, Especially, again, from last week, the dispensational view that you've got the Old Testament Israel story, then you've got this church that we're in, this kind of parentheses to that, and then the story is going to pick back up when, when the church is raptured. So we're not really in a fulfillment of the story of Israel, we're in a parentheses of the story. That story is yet to be continued. I, I'm going to make the claim that that's, that's just not true, that... Um, that, that, that the New Testament, Jesus and Paul and, and the apostles viewed... Um, his coming, his church as the fulfillment of Israel, and, um, and that's a big claim. And so, tomorrow, so uh, next Sunday, we're going to focus on the new covenant, where we're going to get to today. We're going to take you all the way up to the new covenant. We'll focus on the new covenant next week, and then the following week, I'm going to get into some applications of covenant theology. And there are so many that you might not make um, as we go through the theology of it, but I want to make sure that this goes down into um, practicalities of questions you may have and applications for our lives and so forth. But today, we are going to do the covenant of grace. Now, when I say covenant of grace, here's the way you need to conceptualize it, and then I will let... Um, what's on the PowerPoint kind of take it over as I go through. But again, the way you conceptualize it is you've got, um, you've got creation, you've got creation, um, and then fall. This is under the covenant of works that he made with Adam, that original agreement, covenant of works. Then you've got man who's messed that up, and then you've got this whole overarching thing until God's done and gets us back to this point, this, this whole overarching redemption is labeled the covenant of grace. But here's the thing, within the covenant of grace, the way that covenant plays out is in these successive lesser covenants that all together build upon each other and lead to the new covenant. Okay, so you've got one big framework, the covenant of grace, and within that there are going to be specific covenants that we see throughout the Old Testament, and that's where I'm going to take us today. All right, so let's start with covenant of grace really quickly. Keep it there, Paul. So this is Genesis 3.15. This is the moment they fall, um, 
humanity falls and God promises to do something that will overturn the fall and get them back to Eden, so to speak. So Eden, the vision of God for creation and man is destroyed. In Genesis 3.15, God promises to uh, get them back, to fix this, to crush the evil that they have brought. Now I'm just going to read that verse because it's very paramount to this whole thing and make a few comments and then we'll start getting into how this all plays out. So it begins with Genesis 3.15 and this is what God says. He's speaking to to the serpent. He's speaking to Satan, um, to evil. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring... Between, her, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So on a very just, in a seed form, the promise is this, that there is going to be an offspring of the woman. That, 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 that there will be a, an actual person who comes from Eve, from the line of the woman, and that person will be the solution to this entire mess. And then just previewed in there, and that subtle language is previewed how it's going to happen. That the serpent is going to bruise this offspring, but he's going to bruise the serpent. And then what's emphasized there is what is being bruised. Evil will wound the seed of the woman by striking the heel. The seed of the woman will wound evil with the head. So you're going to strike at him. You're going to get a bite. So somehow evil's going to somehow evil's going to get this offspring of the woman. But in the end, he'll get you. And that is the first proclamation of what I'm talking about in my sermon this morning and what develops in the whole Bible. Um, that, that somebody's going to come and fix this mess. That's Genesis 3.15. That's the initiation, the inauguration of this covenant of grace. He immediately does an act after that um, to symbolize that. As I know what he does right after that, he takes, um, takes animals and he slaughters them and he takes their skin and he clothes Adam and Eve in their nakedness. They are now naked and ashamed. And right after God makes the promise, he clothes them. In, um, and this is all I'm talking about in my sermon this morning. He closed them in the, in, in the sacrifice, the sacrificial animals. Okay, so that's the promise. And then right after that, things get really, really bad. You've got um, immediately Cain and Abel, and they are burying each other in shallow graves. You've got murder. You've got hatred. You've got jealousy. You've got this picture of just gross wickedness um, increasing all over as fallen humanity starts to take over the world, so to speak. That's the imagery until it says every thought of man is only sinful all the time. And God does his first covenant within the covenant of grace. This is called the Noahic Covenant. And the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17 is God's promise to preserve the world. Now you might say, boy, that's, that's strange because he destroys the world. Um, what it is, is it's the symbolism of a purging of the world of its evil and a recreating the world, a reinitiation of the story. So he purges the entire thing and starts over, so to speak. He promises 
Um, it, 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 what he does is he, 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 if you read the covenant with Noah that he makes, he takes Noah, his family, he, he wipes out all of creation and he starts over with him. And if you read what God does with Noah, it's a, it's a repetition of what he does with Adam. He tells, him, he tells Noah to go, um, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. All of that language is there. And then he makes a covenant with all of creation. So the first covenant starts very broad. The first covenant is, is to all of the world. Um, this isn't going to come out in this, but it's kind of, you can view it as a funnel of, of what these covenants speak to. And the first one is to all of creation, the whole world. Um, everyone is a benefactor of the Noahic covenant. And his promise is that I'm never going to do this again. I will preserve the world. Um, and, and, and his sign of the covenant is a global sign that's not unique to the people of God. It's not like circumcision or baptism or anything like that. A global sign, which is, of course, is the rainbow. And the imagery of the rainbow is um, the bow is pointed up to heaven. The war bow is pointed up to heaven, not down to earth. And, and, um, and what God is promising here is, is that... I will not destroy the earth like this again. If I do, um, I will, it will be an act of, uh, of war against myself. And so there is this rainbow over all of creation, so to speak, which is a sign that the creator has decided in a common grace way to be merciful to all humanity, to the whole world. So the first covenant that God makes, this Noahic covenant, is, a, is the covenant of common grace. Common grace, you hear that language used. Um, when we say common grace, there's kind of this common grace that God gives to all humanity, and then there's this particular salvific grace. Common grace is just that God is good to everyone. Everybody wakes up and gets what they do not deserve, and that grace is, is in this Noahic covenant. The, the, the atheist who blasphemes God with his breath is taking the very breath that the Lord provides and using it against God. And he should wipe out the planet every single day for, for the wickedness of humanity. And instead, because of this Noahic covenant, he continues to bear patiently with this world that is in rebellion to him. So the first covenant is the Noahic covenant, which is the covenant of preservation, of common grace. Okay, well, that's great. So God has promised not to destroy the world again, to purge it and start over. But now what? It's, his promise of grace is much more than I'm just not going to destroy the place. It is, I'm going to fix the world. So how will he fix the world? Fast forward to our next covenant. This is the big one. The covenant with Abraham. In Abraham, God's chosen, God's, uh, God's chosen people to bless the world. Um, this is Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, really that whole kind of story there. And here's the plan. The plan is, here's how God is going to fix the world. I'm going to choose one person, Abraham, and I am from him going to form an entire people. And I'm going to use that people to, to save the world, essentially. And here are his promises. I'm going to bless them. And that, and that Hebrew that has said that, that that blessing there is more than I'm just going to be nice to you, like I'm going to give you some money and bless you. It's, it's I'm going to redeem these people. I'm going to save these people. I'm going to give my promises of salvation to these people. I'm going to bless them, 
and they will be a blessing. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through them. So I'm going to choose for myself a people, the people of Abraham, and through that people, I'm going to save the world. And then with that covenant comes a few things. The first and most important is circumcision. So he's got a unique people now to himself, and those people are known as circumcision. Now, I, um, you know, let's, I don't want to be too graphic here, but the, the sign means something, okay? Um, if you think about the imagery, think about Genesis 3.15, I'm going to, through the seed of the woman, I'm going to save the world, and the sign of his unique people is a blood covering the reproductive organ, of humanity, that the seed is going to get passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down, and it is, um, and it is, it's a bloody promise of the seed advancing, is what that is. And so God has a people now that he's promising to bless, and he's, prom- and, and, and he's promising to save the world through them, and his people are marked. They are identified with this sign of circumcision. And then elsewhere in the promise, What he said he's going to do is he's going to give them their own land. He's going to give them their own place to be where they're going to live and flourish. And what happened was that land was like the Manhattan of the day. It was the prime real estate. And all of the other nations like came and went through that land. And so the plan was, I'm going to choose a people. I'm going to mark them. I'm going to place them in the best spot. And as all the other nations come and encounter my people, they will encounter me in my ways and I'm going to save the nations. That was the plan. So they gave them a mark and they gave them a land. And that was the promise uh, given to Abraham. Um, And then Abraham waits. And he waits and he waits and he waits until infertility comes. And by the way, that's a common theme in the scriptures because the seed of the woman is the promise and, and you see throughout the whole story, uh, Satan seemingly um, stopping the seed, stopping the line with infertility. So it's a big, um, it's a big theme in scripture. So uh, they wait and they wait and they wait until uh, we're 100. It's not going to happen. Promise over, stops from the beginning. God comes, they laugh at him. He's faithful, produces Isaac. Um, Isaac um, is, uh, has a son, Jacob, who's given a new name. And that name is... Israel. Presbyterians are allowed to talk in Sunday school. You can't talk in worship, okay? You can talk in Sunday school. <laughs> Kidding. Please talk in worship. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's why we say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel, and you got the whole Jacob Esau dilemma. You can go read about that in Romans 9 and God's sovereignty there and all that. Israel has 12 sons. These become the 12 tribes of Israel. Right, one of those sons is uh, Joseph, and he's the most famous because we got a musical after him. Everybody knows his story, um, his his coat of many colors, and he is he is he is uh, his father's favorite son. He gets his coat. The brothers get jealous. They um, they um, they sell him off into slavery. He goes off into slavery to Egypt. Um, and it's this horrific story, but um, that famous line, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And he brings Jacob to Egypt through his just good providence, gets him out of prison. Uh, Joseph rises to power in Egypt and his sons come to him 
as their king. You know the story. Some comes to them. And, and what happens is Israel, the, the, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, settled there in Egypt. And then it fat, and the Bible fast forwards until that group has become now a large nation. The, the Abraham's sons are now a great people, but there's a problem. They're in bondage. All right? They're in bondage to the Egyptians at this point, And they're crying out, um, you remember your promise, God? Do you remember how you said we're going to be in our land, we're going to be flourishing, we're going to be saving the world, all that, you're going to bless us? Uh, what's going on here? We're in bondage to the most powerful uh, nation in the world. And God says, ah, I, I got my plan here. Um, it's slow. That, by the way, his plan's very slow, okay? It's, it's, not, it's not Google. We, got, we, we, we have got to slow down our expectations of God's promises. But anyway, they're in Egypt, they're, they're in slavery, and, and they're crying out to God, remember your promise, remember your promise. He comes to Moses, and he says, I've heard my people's cry, and you need to go tell Pharaoh to let them go. And Moses uh, goes, and he tells Pharaoh to let them go. No, yes, no, yes, no. They go back and forth. Plagues. The big one is the Passover. I'm not going to go into all the typology, but you know the innocent lamb slaughtered, all of that. They, they come out. They come to the Red Sea. It's impossible. Um, the, the, the symbolism of the sea parting, God's people walking through the waters of baptism, which, which, separate, um, which separate God's people. They, cr- the, the, they drown the, the armies of Pharaoh, but save uh, the people um, of Israel. And once they're on the other side and have been delivered out, we have our next covenant, the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. This is Genesis 20 through 24, and um, the nature of this covenant is God's people are now holy from the world. They are a, they are a distinct people with their own, of course, the law is big with this one. They get the law. And what happens at this point is they become what we call a church-state nexus. What I mean by that is they're not just a people, they're also a state now. They are unique, holy, that means separate people, um, from from the rest of the nations. And you've got all of these ceremonial and judicial laws. The law that God gave to Moses was not just the moral law. It was also these ceremonial laws, these judicial laws, and we're going to talk about what happens to those next week. But all those weird kind of strange laws, those are all making them a holy nation apart from all of the other nations at the time, separating Israel from the nations. The law shows the heart of God, which is order and health and justice and purity. The laws of the time were revolutionary um, for, for, for cultures. And um, so we see the heart of God, and then right after he gives the law, he institutes something else that's important to the Mosaic Covenant. What does he give right after he gives the law? Sacrificial system, right? So he gives them the law and says, by the way, you're going to need this. And he institutes the sacrificial system, this complex, bloody system of sacrifice, which, of course, is previewing uh, Jesus and so they have the law under the covenant. They are a, they are, the chosen people are now a holy nation unto themselves. They wander in the desert. They rebel. The generation dies off. Joshua, they conquest the land that was originally promised um, to them. And then, and then what happens when they get in the land is these 12 tribes separate and spread out into this promised land that they were promised. And, and then they have judges over all of that land. God institutes judges. That's the book of Judges over all that land. 
who are ruling over the nation in different regions. And what happens when this is happening is a lot of disorder and destruction and chaos. And the repeated refrain there is, in that day the people had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It is a messed up nation full of immorality and disorder and they need a king. They cry out for a king, but a king like the nations. And so God gives them the king that they cried out for, the king like the nations, King Saul. Uh, But he's not the king they need. He's the king like the other nations. But then this unlikely character, uh, David, uh, youngest shepherd, um, is anointed king of Israel, defeats the enemy of Israel on behalf of of um, Israel um, and, you know, Goliath and that whole, whole story. And he rises up and he's king. And when he's on his throne, there's this beautiful line that says, God gave them rest from all of their enemies. And so you've got God's people in the promised land that, that God promised with the king, a righteous king on the throne, and it's peace in the kingdom of God. And it's into that moment that we have the next one, the Davidic covenant. God comes to David in that moment in 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, and says, I'm going to establish your throne in your kingdom, and this nation will rule over all, will rule the world. Now, when you say rule, don't interpret that the way Israel interpreted that, which is, yeah, we're going to dominate. It's going to rule in the way we were supposed to rule way back when, it, when, when they said, you're going to bless the world. So Abraham, you're going to have a people. Moses, my people become a holy nation. David, that nation is on a mission, and that mission is to save this world. To rule the world in righteousness, grace, love, mercy, all the things that God's made them to rule. So God's chosen people will rule the world. And his promise is that there will be an everlasting throne. His kingdom will rule over all. And there's going to be, again, a seed, someone who's going to come. And who's going to do that? He's going to come from David. His son is Solomon. He builds the temple. Um, And um, after Solomon, you have um, a divide. Here's what happens after the Davidic covenant. After the Davidic covenant, so we're, 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 we're at the last major Old Testament covenant of the covenant of grace. And after that, the whole thing goes crazy. David is the last great, I mean, Solomon's a great king um, in in some rights, but what happens after that is you have a divide between two kingdoms. It's a north-south divide. You have Israel in the north, and who's in the south? Judah in the south. It gets a little confusing in your Bibles because often Judah is referred to as Israel, so it's kind of hard to kind of discern all that. But you have a divide in the kingdom. Um, Jeroboam is the king in Israel. Rehoboam is the rightful heir is the king in Judah. And the rest is one big sad history of horrible and wicked kings in Israel forsaking their Lord, adopting the gods of other nations. It just turns into a mess. And it seems like all that God promised is failed. That we screwed it up again. And it all culminates in uh, 722... 722, the northern kingdom is um, Assyrians conquer Israel. And in 722, they're taken in exile. So that's done. It's over. Another kingdom has them. They're in exile. Uh, the south holds on. South, Judah has a few 
good kings mixed in with a lot of bad kings. They, 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 they hang on for a while. Uh, but when was that? Five, what was it? 597. 597. They're conquered by Babylon. Babylon. And that's, that's detailed more in the scriptures. By Babylon. So they're taking into exile. They're already in exile. Everything's lost. So what it feels like is, though they tasted the promise, it now seems like everything that God promised to their father Abraham is over. Their people are no longer. They're certainly not changing the world. They're certainly not blessing the world. They're certainly not saving the world. There's no way they're redeeming the world. This thing is a mess. And through it out, throughout all of this, this is where all the prophets in the Old Testament come. God raises up prophets. And these prophets... Um, are, are coming and they're doing two things. They're, they're rebuking the people. They're warning the people. And they're saying, God's not done. I know it looks like God's done. I know you're in exile. I know you're no longer a people. I know all hope is lost. Just God's not done. He's not done. Now repent because he's not done is the message of the prophets. And in 538, Cyrus of Persia defeats the Babylonians. So Persia defeats this Babylonian empire, which had Judah, which had Israel really at the time. Um, defeats them. And um, Cyrus um, orders that an edict that the Jews are allowed to go back and reestablish their promised land and, and, and their heritage and their identity and all that. And so, as you, as you know, Ezra leads the people in rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah leads the people in real, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And that's, kind, that's where the Old Testament stops. And there is this sense at the end of the Old Testament of everybody's rejoicing. You remember this scene? Everybody's rejoicing. Yay! God was faithful. He gave us back our land. We got our temple back. We got our walls back. And everybody's excited. God was faithful. And it says that the older, the older elders, what were they doing? They were weeping, right? And they're weeping because they're saying, this can't be it. I mean, God promised Abraham that he would literally, his people would save the world. And, 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 and here this, this empire, let us go back and build our temple and walls. I mean, that's great. I'm glad we're not in exile anymore. But it has to be more than this. And so your Old Testament ends with this feeling of, this can't be it. All that was promised to Abraham, all that was promised when God said he is going to fix the world, and we're just a small little people with a temple and walls, there has to be more. And then literally for 400 years, you hear nothing from God. Isn't that amazing? 400 years of silence from God. And the Jews continue on, the struggling people, trying to hold on hope, trying to reconcile all the glorious promises that they've been given and how they have fallen short. And at 400 years at this time, a new empire is in complete control, the Roman Empire, still not there, it's still not working. And then... A voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. The last prophet of the Old Testament took him 400 years to show up. John the Baptist. And he just, he's a fiery man out in the wilderness saying, it's here. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. You need to repent because he's almost here. And Jesus shows up and he's baptizing in the Jordan. And John sees Jesus, said, there he is. I'm not worthy to touch his sandals. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not of Israel, but of the world. And then what we see in Jesus is he starts to proclaim that his kingdom, the promises of the kingdom of God that were given to David, right? Your kingdom will rule over all and it will save the world. It will bless the world like he promises. Jesus comes and says, it's at hand. It's go time. And then as we've been studying in Mark for, um, for three years now, we have seen Jesus fulfill all of this stuff. It's just everything he does has a nod back to that story. And it would seem as though this Jesus is the very fulfillment of the entire covenant of grace. He is the fulfillment of, 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 of Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and all the promises that were in that covenant. And he speaks about the kingdom of God being at hand. And then one night... This is what we do every week now, um, Luke 22, but also in other places. He holds up the covenant, he holds up the cup of the old covenant and said, this is a new covenant in my blood. And this signifies that God fulfills all covenant promises in the Savior of the world. As it turns out, the entire Old Testament was about this one man the God-man who's coming to fulfill all the promises of God. All of the promises find their yes in Jesus. And then something happens. He dies. <laughs> and everybody says, whoops, never mind. Thought that was it. He's in a tomb. And then with his resurrection... It is the resurrection, it is the, it is the first moment, it is the first birth of a new humanity, the first day of a new world. It is, it, is the, it, is, it, is, it is God starting over with this new covenant and expanding it out until every tongue, tribe, and nation will worship the Lord Jesus Christ and God will redeem all things and there will be a new humanity. And it started with Jesus taking his, how many apostles? Twelve apostles. And he says, here's how I did it back then. I gave you a land, twelve tribes, and the nations came to you, and you became like the nations. Here's how we're going to do it now. I come to you. I fulfill all the promises. I give you the promises. Now, therefore, what? Go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name. That baptizing them is I'm starting a new, I'm starting a new Israel, it's the church. Baptizing is, is, is I'm, I'm going to found a church. It's, we're all part of that. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey me. Tell the nations to obey their proper king. And that's where we are. The commission is going out. And we have seen, we're going to get in this next week, we've seen the inauguration of the new covenant and we await the consummation 
of the new covenant. So it's the already the kingdom of God is at hand, the not yet, it's not fully to bear here. Already not yet, inauguration of the new covenant, we're awaiting the finality of the new covenant. We are in this new covenant, which was the fulfillment of the old covenant, which will carry on until um, the consummation. The new heavens, the new earth, and Genesis 3.15 um, is complete. There's the history of the world. All right, come back next week. We'll do the new covenant. We'll get into detail about Christ fulfilling Israel, um, what that looks like. I know there's a lot of questions about that. Um, Where does the nation of Israel fit into this now? Are they no more? All that stuff, we'll talk about that next week. Come back, let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the story of redemption that you have promised and the story that you are writing. Thank you, O Jesus, for not giving up. Thank you that long ago you should have been done with us and yet you are relentless and you will not stop until the heavens and the earth are new again, until we are back where we belong in perfect relationship with you and creation, until forever and ever we will live in new heavens and new earth. We await the day of consummation. Until then, Lord, we go to work. We are busy in our neighborhoods, in our lives, with our friends and our family. We are at work bringing to bear the kingdom of God that was promised long ago witnessing to the hope of Jesus as the Savior of the world. I pray this would inspire us that we have a part, we, this generation, is a part of this great story. And may we be found faithful in our generation. Give us big eyes to see what you're doing beyond our immediate circumstances. And help us now as we go into worship to worship you, King Jesus, who all the promises of God find their yes in you. Thank you. We pray in your name. Amen.